Welcome to Hope Community Church of Hickory. We are so glad you decided to join us online. Make sure and hit the follow and notification buttons to keep up to date with all of our sermons. Here is our latest message. Man, you guys go and have a seat. Before we get into this, I want to take a moment to, to celebrate and thank you for all the donations for towards Project 1-5. When you walked in, you saw the big uh, baby shower table out there. Like, I don't know about you, but I am pleasantly surprised at the amount of gifts and donations on that table. Anybody else? Yeah. Man, I'm so thankful that uh, we're going to get to be able to bless the Pregnancy Care Center of Catawba Valley with that. Um, and uh, I might uh, need some help doing, bringing all that stuff because I don't know if all that's going to fit in the Durango now. But, uh, Ginger, thank you so much for spearheading that and, and, uh, and the way that you've connected there and allowing us to serve in this capacity. Um, uh, Brandon and Rick, you guys will appreciate this. I, I told Ginger earlier, I said, it's very refreshing as a pastor when someone from the church comes and gives an idea and you say, yeah, go ahead, do that, and it actually happens, you know, <laughs> actually gets done, not expecting the pastor to do it all. So um, I'm just so thankful and um, excited to see what the Lord is going to do in and through that and that relationship that's going to continue to develop with the Pregnancy Care Center. Um, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 9. We're going to continue our journey throughout the Gospel of John in our series entitled, This is Jesus. And in John chapter 9, we're going to get right into it, beginning in verse 1. It says, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that caused him to be born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. No, I'm a, I consider myself to be a pretty direct person. Uh, I might not be Jaleesa direct, but um, I'm, I'm pretty direct. So I love it whenever there's passages of Scripture that are very blunt, direct, and to the point. And Paul, he was very good at this. Paul, whenever he was mentoring young Timothy after he set up Timothy as the pastor at the church at Ephesus, he writes him two different letters giving him some leadership advice and some coaching. And among my favorite pieces of advice that he gives to Timothy is this. He says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. Don't you just love the bluntness and directness of that? It's one of my greatest pet peeves whenever I see and hear Christians focus more on debating people theologically rather than loving people compassionately. And what gets on my nerves about that the most is because more often than not, they're just arguing with other Christians rather than focusing on the mission at hand. You see, these disciples, they're walking into the temple with Jesus. They're on their way to a worship service, right? They're feeling pretty spiritual. So they bring up a topic of spiritual conversation. They see this blind beggar, and this has been a point of contention and debate among the religious Jews, so they want to get Jesus' take on it. They say, whose sin caused this man to be born blind, his or his parents? 
It's an interesting question because it dealt with some theological issues. Was it his personal sin that caused him to be born blind? How could that be? He was born blind. How could it be his sin? Well, there were some Jews that believed in prenatal sin. They believed that a fetus could sin within the womb. Um, for example, if the baby was kicking a lot, they believed that the baby might be dealing with the anger of sin already in the womb and things like that. And, of course, there were many that did not agree, so it was a topic of debate. This also brought up the idea of the generational curse. Now, we don't know if that was the exact term that they would use back then, but there was thought that the consequences of a parent's sin would be passed down to their children, and in this case, the consequence would be shown as this man being born blind. Again, another topic of theological debate. And then in the disciples' minds, it wasn't if one of these was the case. It was which one was it? They just asked Jesus, which one is it? Jesus says neither. And now, whenever I was first putting together this message, I was planning on going about the route about debunking those two theories and what disciples were thinking. But then it hit me, that's not what Jesus did here. <laughs> Jesus didn't get into proving them wrong. Instead, he just shifted the focus. Jesus said it, it wasn't this man that sinned or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him while it's still day. Now, that word work can also be translated business. We need to be about the business of God. It reminds me of whenever Jesus uh, was 12 years old and his parents went back to find him teaching in the temple. And we see Jesus' first recorded words in the Bible. And it says, why did you seek me? Did you not know I must be about my father's business? There's something we need to understand about Jesus. Jesus is more about godly business than he is godly debate. Now, I put godly debate in quotations there because a lot of times I think we fall into thinking that if a topic of conversation is theological or spiritual in some way, then it must be godly. But that's not the case at all because it is impossible for something to be godly that does not come from a place of love and compassion. Love is God's business. That's why he sent his only son into the world, right? Why? Because he loved the world. Verse John tells us anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. If we are about God's business, we will be about it in a loving manner. And if it is not loving, then it's not God's business. Let's go back to Paul's instructions in Timothy. He tells him to have nothing to do with foolish and stupid arguments. And then he goes on to say, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Translation, God's people should not be the ones picking fights. They must be kind to everyone able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of truth. He says we should be filled with so much love, even for the opponents of our faith, that our hope should be not to win an argument, but to see them come to repentance in a loving relationship with the God who made them. But then the angry Christians love to, love to quote 1 Peter 3, right? It says, everyone must be ready to give a defense to the hope that's in them. But then we leave off the very next part of the verse. It says, yet do so with gentleness and respect, so that if anyone comes against you, it will be put to shame. John Wesley once said, if one opposes the truth, he cannot be brought to the knowledge of it but by gentleness. See, argument and debate pretty much will never result in faith, but compassion and care can and as we'll see here, faith is the work that Jesus is here to accomplish. We see the real work come to fruition in verse 38. We won't have time to break down the end of this chapter, but this man comes to Jesus. He says, yes, Lord, I believe. And he bows and he worships Jesus. 
Jesus is in the business of making the broken whole. And yes, he's going to heal this man of his blindness, but there's a greater business at work here. And the way Jesus goes about this is he takes the disciples' topic of conversation and then makes him the object of his compassion. These disciples didn't even take the time to see this man as a person to be cared for. They just saw an argument to be won. So Jesus, instead of entertaining that, he switches the focus. He says, you can stand here and debate the whys and the hows all you want, but what really matters is working the works of God. He says we have to take advantage of the limited time that we have here to do the works of God. And if you remember back in uh, chapter 6, Jesus is asked, like, what works should they be doing to be doing the works of God? And Jesus responds with, this is the work of God. That you believe in him in whom he has sent. People coming to believe in him, coming to put their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, is the work that he wants to accomplish so we can obtain eternal life. However, once we come to that faith, our work is now to do everything we possibly can to lead people to come to that same faith and experience that same salvation that we have. We only have a limited time to be able to partner with God in this endeavor. Think about it. Never again in all of eternity will we ever have the opportunity to evangelize. Never again in all of eternity will we have the opportunity to make disciples or share our testimony or help lead someone to come to faith in him because once we're in heaven, there's not going to need anybody the need of being saved. So we have the greatest opportunity and privilege right now with the vapor of life that we have on this planet to be a part of this work. So maybe, just maybe, we need less Christians that are wasting time arguing about petty little theological differences that we probably won't even know the full answers to on this side of eternity, and maybe we need more that will be more focused on the mission at hand. Now, to be fair, there are theological teachings and issues that we need, that we are supposed to stand against. There's false teachings that we're not supposed to tolerate. And any gospel that opposes grace alone through faith alone, that contradicts that Jesus Christ is the only way into salvation, will not be tolerated in our church. But those are not the extremes we're talking about here. We're talking about the petty differences that aren't issues of salvation. We're talking about the denominational or church splits that happen because they can't agree on the exact timeline of the end times. We're talking about debates that happen over Bible translations or worship styles. Talk about those who get caught up more on their church preferences than how they can serve and be a part of advancing the kingdom of God. Talking about predestination versus free will. Now, for those of you who have uh, heard me speak for a while, you've probably heard these stories multiple times. But I, I want to share these stories again, just kind of put this all in context in my personal journey. You know, I, I, uh, if you're not familiar with predestination versus free will, like predestination is the camp that believes that God picks and chooses who's going to go to heaven, who's going to go to hell. We have no say in the matter, and then free will is self-explanatory, right? Now, um, I remember hearing a story about a pastor in the 1920s. He was about to head off to seminary, and he asked his mentor, his pastor, who had attended the same seminary, he said, do you have any last pieces of advice for me before I head off to seminary? He said, yeah, I got one. He said, every Tuesday evening, you're going to walk by the student center, and there's going to be a great debate going on. And it's going to look enticing, and you're going to want to jump into it, but it's going to be this great debate, predestination versus free will. He said, my advice to you is to walk right on by, go to your room, open your Bible, and stick to Lewis's face. 
That's exactly what that man did. Uh, that's a story I wish I would have heard a lot earlier on in my life because about 100 years later, I was at Bible college, and the same exact thing was going on all the time. Now, and I was one that entertained the debate, you know. Um, I, I remember one time, I always, in full honesty and transparency, which I don't hide it anyway, I've always leaned a lot more on the free will side, okay. And um, I remember one time we had a chapel speaker come into school, and uh, the very first thing out of his mouth, was, I'm going to challenge all of your thinking on free will today. And he goes on to speak a message that pretty much called anyone who believed in free will an idiot. And I did not like the, what he had to say at all, and I was not afraid to let people know. And I went around all day. Anytime that chapel was brought up, I was letting people know what I didn't like about that guy and why and what he said. And that evening, the Holy Spirit kind of smacked me upside the head. You ever had that happen to you? <laughs> and he said, who are you to talk about another man of God like that? And I was humbled, and I had to go back and find every single person I badmouthed that pastor to and apologized to. It was a very humbling experience. But I still hadn't quite gotten it yet. Uh, about my senior year, one day I had um, this, uh, this underclassman, freshman or sophomore, he walked into my dorm, and he just came in like wanting to preach the gospel of predestination to me. I, I didn't understand. Like, I'd never know, seen this kid before in my life. And he comes in just like wanting to spark the debate. So I'm like, all right, I'm about to tear this kid apart. And um, I just let him give his whole spiel, and I, and I said, I, after he was done, I said, all right, man, if that's what you believe, what's the point of evangelism? What's the point of missions? What's the point of sharing your testimony? What's the point of going into ministry at all? Why are you even getting this degree if that's what you believe? If God just picks and chooses, and you, no one has any say in the matter. And he stopped, and he thought, and he's like, well, we don't exactly know who those people are. And so it's still our job to take it to him. God still wants us to be a part. And I stopped and thought, and I was like, you know what? I don't think your logic is 100% sound there. But I had to realize we believe in the same Jesus. We believe in the same great commission. We're on the same team. We may have different thoughts and the ins and outs of how it all works, but the reality is we're both wrong on some level. It's going to be a level of both. We won't fully understand the complexities of it on this side of eternity. But... Maybe we just need to focus more on the Savior and seeing people come to him rather than wasting time debating each other. It was a wake-up call for me. Because what's the point of it all? We need to be about the Father's business more than anything else. And that business must always come from a place of love and compassion. The disciples, they're not taking the time to show this man any compassion, so Jesus does. And he does so in such a strange way. He spits on the ground, makes some mud, Rubs it on his eyes and says to go clean himself up. Like, what? <laughs> now, why would Jesus do it in this specific way? Now, after my reading and all the research that I've done on this topic, I've come to the conclusion, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't know if the pastor's supposed to say that. But, no, I, like, I honestly don't know. There's a lot of speculation out there. You know, there, there's some that talk about the healing components that was thought to be in the specific soil of that area. There's some that talk about the symbolic correlation between this and, and God making Adam from the dust of the earth and uh, the redemption of humanity being seen there. There's a lot of cool symbolism that can be sorted through, but at the end of the day, we don't really know. It's speculation. And I'm definitely going to ask Jesus one day, and I know I'm going to be able to. But here's something that really stands out to me about this situation. Jesus shows compassion without even being asked to. 
This guy doesn't come to Jesus asking for a miracle like so many others did. This guy wasn't yelling, son of David, don't pass me by. This guy didn't have his friends lower him through a roof to get to Jesus. He's just sitting there minding his own business. Probably had a little tin cup out there asking the people coming to and from church for some change. There's a lot of commotion going on. It's a busy time. He probably doesn't even hear the discussion going on 10 feet from him. As far as we know, all he hears is some guy walk up near him, spit on the ground, rub something on his face, and then say, all right, go wash it off. I'd probably be thinking, not cool, man. What you just put on my face? <laughs> and who knows if he's even thinking this is going to result in a miracle or a sight. He's given no context here. He could just be thinking, some guy just rubbed something on my face. It feels gross, so yeah, I want to go wash it off. But then he gets to the pool, and he washes off his face, and all of a sudden, he can see. What just happened? And he realizes, oh, that was Jesus everyone's been talking about. He gave me sight. I didn't even ask for it. And here's something that we all need to remember, is you never need to ask God for his love and compassion in your life. You always have it. Now, we definitely need to ask him for his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and probably even an awareness of his love in our lives. But he is always going to love you and have compassion on you, whether you ask for it or not. That's true love, giving everything of yourself for another without expecting anything in return. God's always going to love you, even if you don't love him back. Now, he wants you to love him back. He desperately wants to have a personal relationship with you, and there's no such thing as a one-way relationship. You cannot be in a loving relationship with someone that you don't love back, but his love for you will never be predicated on your love for him. He's going to love you regardless. That's why John tells us we love because he first loved us. Paul says even when we were yet sinners, even when we were enemies of God, he still showed the greatest act of love in all of human history by pouring out his blood on the cross and dying for you. The question is, will you love him back? Paul tells the church at Ephesus, I desperately pray for you that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, depth, and height to know the love of God which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Man, do you really want to know God? Do you really want to be filled with all the fullness of God? Paul says, do everything you can to try to comprehend how much he loves you. Now, you'll never fully be able to wrap your mind around it because this love surpasses knowledge. But whenever you take the time just to dwell and meditate on the love of God and how much he loved you before you ever even loved him, he said that's what's going to begin to fill you with the fullness of God. And whenever you do that, I promise you, you are going to change. And people are going to notice. Verse 8 of John 9 goes on to say, his neighbors, the blind man, his neighbors and others who knew him as the blind beggar asked each other, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was. Others said, no, that's not him. It just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, no, it was me. I am the same one. Whenever you recognize and accept the love and compassion of Jesus, you are going to look different. Now, the the year of my life that I regret the most was my sophomore year of high school. If I could go back and, like, relive one year of my life, it would be that year, hands down. 
Um, I was back and spent one year of high school in Harrisburg Christian School in Pennsylvania. It was a school that I had spent uh, first grade through sixth grade at, and I left for three years, and I came back. And so I knew, like, almost all those, all those kids in there. And back in the Christian school, but I was blatantly not living like a Christian. And I was a jerk. I thought I was cool. Like, it was just, there's a lot of words I could be described as. Like, I just, I'm filled with so much guilt and regret when I think back about the way I acted and the person I was that year. And I wish so desperately I could go back and change. And I, I remember uh, years later, the Lord had gotten really hold of my life. And um, I went back up to Pennsylvania for a wedding. And it was going to be one of those old classmates. And so we were around a lot of those same people there. And so we're at the wedding, reconnecting with some people. And uh, I was at the, the reception, and we're just talking. I don't remember what we were talking about or anything. I don't even think it was spiritual or anything like that. But there was one guy there who was sitting at the reception, and he just kept side-eyeing me. This is a guy who really didn't like me. He had every reason not to like me. Like, I, I, I completely understand, but he just looked at me. And he finally says, what happened to you? And I got to tell you, I got filled with so much joy in that moment because I, I got to talk about, how and why I look so different now. <laughs> now, why I wasn't really recognized as the same person. You may have thought I was the same person whenever I walked in, but I'm not the same person that I was there anymore. And I got to talk about how the love and compassion of Jesus really changed my life. And I was so thankful that someone could notice without me even saying something about it. That's why your testimony is so powerful. Because people can argue doctrinal and theological differences with you all they want, but they can never argue with you about your story and your experience. That's why your testimony is the most powerful tool that you will have in your arsenal for evangelism. Because God can use your story, and he can also use your struggle to accomplish his work by bringing people to faith. Now, I personally, I do not believe that God is the bringer of pain. But I do believe he brings purpose to it and through it. And the next thing we see from Jesus in this passage is that Jesus, he can turn a trial into a testimony. It's one of the greatest questions and hang-ups that people have whenever it comes to God. Why do bad things happen to good people? If God's so good, why does he let bad things happen at all? Jesus even acknowledged on the Sermon on the Mount that God sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. That doesn't seem fair. Now, I don't believe that God causes pain and suffering in our lives. Some will argue with me on that, but either way, there's no denying that he at least allows pain and suffering to be in our lives. We can all probably think of something that we've experienced in our lives and wonder, why would God ever allow me to go through that? Now, back, going back to the disciples' question, the reality was this man was sin, was blind because of sin. Now, where they went wrong was trying to pin it on someone specifically and play the whole blame game. But it was sin in general that caused this man's blindness. He was blind because we live in a broken world. Bad things happen because we live in a broken world that is infected with sin. Because sin exists, it causes ripple effects all throughout this life and this world, and it causes chaos and accidents and violence and hatred and disease and sickness. We see all the effects of sin when living in a fallen world. And God does not completely eradicate sin, because in order to do so, he would have to eradicate all of humanity as well, because we're all still sinful individuals. And there will come a day where that will happen. 
There will come a day where all sin will be done away with, but until that day comes, he's giving as many people time and opportunity to come to him. Now, like we talked about last week, Jesus, he has set us free from the accusations of sin and the consequences of sin, but we are still susceptible to the effects of sin. And we may find ourselves asking God, why are you letting me go through this? And we read in this passage, you healed this blind man. Why don't you do something like that for me? But what we fail to recognize is that this man had been blind from birth. How many decades had he spent there blind and begging before his healing came? We read in John chapter 5 a few weeks ago how Jesus healed the lame man who had been there for 38 years first. Just because they were healed doesn't mean they hadn't suffered. And the beauty of the work of Jesus is that he works all things out for the good of those who love him and called according to his purpose. All things. That's the good things. That's the bad things. That's the hard things. The hard to comprehend things. He gives purpose to the pain. He brings salvation through the suffering. And you know, it actually could be argued that God's glory is shown more through suffering than it is through healing. That's why I don't get the televangelists and everything <laughs> and the theology that they, they like to spew. You know, everyone wants a quick healing, but, you know, the New Testament tells us we, we can't become more like Jesus unless we suffer in some way. The Old Testament refers to Jesus as the suffering servant. Isaiah calls him a man of sorrows. And God can use our story. He can use our suffering. He can use our trial in a number of different ways. And I want to talk about a few ways that I believe God can use our suffering and our trials. And again, I don't believe that God creates our suffering, but I believe that God can take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it for our good. Amen? So one way that God can use our suffering is to lead us to him. There are some that don't give God or faith a single thought until something bad happens. And then they get mad and they blame God for it. And I don't think God really minds that. Why? Because at least they're acknowledging him. And the hope is that their acknowledging him will turn into them leaning on him. C.S. Lewis once said, no doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. But it plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. I wish I could come up with something cool like that. right? <laughs> if God has to use our suffering to get our attention, to get us to realize the truth of who he is, I promise it will be worth it. Because a pleasant life will not be worth the suffering of hell. And suffering in this life will all be worth the pleasures of heaven. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, I consider the suffering of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If some form of suffering is what leads us to eternal life, no matter how hurtful it may be, I promise it will be worth it. Because this life is but a vapor. And we will have all of eternity to look forward to where there will be no more pain. Where he will wipe every tear from every eye. And suffering will exist no more. And even for those of us who already come to faith, sometimes God can use our suffering to steer us back to himself whenever we've lost our focus on him. As one pastor says, sometimes God uses our suffering to spank us. And sometimes we need it. <laughs> He's not going to get our attention any other way. But Paul also says in Romans 5, not only that, but... We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
who has been given to us. Another way that God can use our suffering is to grow us. If life were always easy, we would never grow. We would never gain wisdom. We would never become stronger individuals. Paul says suffering will not crush you, but rather because you have God's spirit and love in your life, suffering will produce endurance, strength, and character in your life. And the more that endurance, strength, and character is produced, the more that you can have hope. You can have that confident expectation that even in the midst of suffering, God is working through it and in it. Not just to benefit you, but also everyone else around you. And probably the most important way that God can use our suffering is to help others. That's the basis of our entire second point here. God can turn a trial into a testimony. How many times have you and I gone through something difficult just to eventually come across someone who's gone through something similar and then we get the opportunity to speak into their suffering? If your trial or your suffering helps lead someone to Jesus or to grow in Jesus, would it be worth it? James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance or patience. Let perseverance finish its works that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now you might ask, how can that help others? Well, if you're able to find joy in the midst of your trials and have perseverance and patience in the most difficult times in your life, people are going to notice that. And that's the hope that people so desperately want to find in their lives. They'll ask, how in the world are you able to find peace and contentment in the midst of the most difficult circumstances? And that will give you one of the most powerful platforms to speak Jesus into their lives. Because that's the hope people are searching for. So we all love the thought of healing in the moment, but what people are really looking for is hope for the struggle. And we can't share that hope unless we struggle. Now, you might say, how does this point fit with this passage? Danny's going off on a rabbit trail again, right? This guy was healed. He wasn't going through a trial. Oh, but he did go through a trial. Longer than we knew. And he would again. We would see at the end of this passage, he actually gets kicked out. He gets banned. He gets excommunicated from the synagogue because as a result of all of this. That man gets kicked out of church because Jesus healed him and he told people about it. But Jesus had opened his eyes to a greater truth. And other people's eyes are going to be opened as well. Let's pick up the story again in verse 10. I promise we'll wrap this up pretty quick. They asked this man, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed, and now I can see. Where is he now, they asked. I don't know, he replied. Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath. Jesus always doing something on the Sabbath, right? Stirring the pot. That made, when Jesus made the mud and healed him. The Pharisees asked the man all about it, so he told them, well, he put mud over my eyes and I washed it away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God, he's working on the Sabbath. Others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such a miraculous sign? And there was deep division of opinion among them. Let's not brush over that. Right? Now, how many weeks in a row have we brought up these Pharisees? 
And, and these Pharisees where they're on like pretty much united front. Nicodemus is the only one that we might be on the other side, but right? But these people are trying to do everything they can to discredit Jesus, to hurt him, to get rid of him, to have him killed, have him arrested. Even last week they sent the temple police to go try and shut him up. They're trying everything they can to get rid of him. But now all of a sudden, this guy comes in. Jesus opened up his blind eyes. He shared his testimony in front of them. And now we see some of these Pharisees' hearts are starting to turn. Now, now we see some of those, the least likely people we would expect to come to faith. Oh, now their opinion of Jesus is starting to change. We're seeing, starting to see faith be brought up because of this man's testimony. He goes on to say, then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, well, what's your opinion of this man who healed you? The man said, well, I think he must be a prophet. So here this man used two phrases that I wish a lot more Christians and a lot more pastors would use. I don't know, and I think. I hope you never feel the need to prove that you're some sort of theological scholar whenever you come to our church. I'm not. Got out of college with a 2.5 GPA. <laughs> but there's going to be people who bombard us with questions and accusations about our faith. And if we can truly learn the power of I don't know or I think, our faith will come from a much more authentic and genuine place rather than trying to manufacture answers that we may or may not have. We'll get into more on that when we go through a series on the Holy Spirit. <laughs> get ready for that. And I love the way this guy handles these conversations. Verse 25, he goes on to say, I don't know whether this guy's a sinner, but I know this. I was blind and now I see. Man, that's the spirit in the culture that I so desperately want to have here at our church. They would say, how could you be forgiven? How could you become a Christian? How could God love you? I know what you've done. I know what you come by. I don't know. But I was blind and now I see. Why do you feel like you have to be so generous, trying to be all high and mighty? Why don't you take care of yourself before you try to take care of other people? I don't know, but I was blind, and now I see. Oh, you're a Christian now? Well, what's the most accurate translation of the Bible that you read? I don't know, but I was blind, and now I see. Did you choose God, or did God choose you? I don't know, but I was blind, and now I see. Well, now that you've come to faith, tell me, what are your views on the eschatological timelines? What? I don't know. <laughs> but I was blind, and now I see. Now, I'm not saying these things are important, and they don't have value, and that there's not a time and a place for these things to be studied and, have, and be discussed and have conversations about them, because there are. Right? I'm not promoting ignorance here. But these are things that we should never break fellowship over. These are things that should never take away from the mission of hand or get in the way of us showing love and compassion to others. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, while knowledge makes us feel important, it's love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. Another blunt verse. I love it. Now Jesus, at the end of this chapter, he would tell these Pharisees the way that they can recognize that they're spiritually blind is because they think they can see. The moment we think we got it figured out, that's the moment we're in trouble. <laughs> You're supposed to have the faith of a child, right? 
why do we try to grow up sometimes? <laughs> why do we? Now, again, I'm not promoting ignorance. I'm not saying you shouldn't have your personal studies and learn all the theological and spiritual truths that you can, because you should. I just want you to know that we're not in this life to try to compete with or try to impress other Christians. We're in this life to be about God's business, to be about the works of God, seeing people come to faith in Him. And the petty differences of opinion should never get away with it. I got to tell you, that's why I am so thankful for Equip Church. I'm so thankful for Pastor Brandon. Those of you who don't know the story, um, Equip Church, uh, well, they actually were going to be Hope Church, but then we kind of started first. So <laughs> that's how we met. We, we accidentally, unknowingly stole their name. And uh, then uh, Equip Church is going to be planting in Longview Elementary this September. And so um, Pastor Brandon and his core team, raise your hand if you're a part of the Equip Church. They're, they're part of our church body here um, until they're going to be sent out and launched there. And Pastor Brandon and I, we, we come from different denominational backgrounds. There are some doctrinal and theological issues we don't agree on. But that's my brother. We're on the same mission. I'm so thankful that God set it up that we can personally live out these truths before I ever knew I was going to preach something about it set our culture. And I'm not going to lie. September scares me. <laughs> I, was, I was being honest and repenting to Delisa and Emma earlier this week. You know, thinking about September and them leaving, that, that that's kind of scares me back in my mind. I start to think, like, what if we keep having Sundays like today where half of our team doesn't show up? Now, half the body's going to be gone, right? What if, what if we don't see any, like, real big growth by the time that comes? I can't. I'm going to be honest with you. I thought about becoming free will Baptist just to kind of keep them around. <laughs> I remember going through, like, like, all the thought process, like, what can we do to get Pastor Brandon stuff? What can we do to get Equip Church established? And then I got to be reminded, man, this is a win. We get to help another church body go reach another part of the city, reach people that will never be able to we get to help prepare them and send them off the best way possible. We get to be about the works of God together in two different locations, you know. And I'm, I'm just so thankful that God put us in this position. And I know he's going to bless it. Oh, he's going to make us sweat. I won't be surprised if we have 15 people sitting in the sanctuary the, the day they go do their launch Sunday. God's going to do something, but we, we know he's blessing this ministry. He knows we're blessing their ministry. And I can't wait to see what he continues to do. <laughs> Man. Well, before I start crying. <laughs> Man, let's, let's take some time to pray together. Father, I thank you for moments like this where we can be honest and we can be real. And we can be full of gratitude for how good you've been to us. Father, thank you for teaching us firsthand the lessons of what Christian siblings are supposed to be like. <laughs> and there are times where it's time to move out of the household to another. 
Father, thank you for the ways that you humble us and keep us in check. Thank you so much for the relationships that are formed. Thank you so much for sending us and Equip Church to Hickory in the same season. It's so obvious. You know what you're doing and we don't. Forgive me, Lord, for trying to take matters in my own hands all the time. Forgive us whenever we try to do it ourselves rather than looking to you. And thank you so much that you are teaching us what it truly means to live by faith. Father, I also want to take up time to, to lift up to you those in this room that may have been experiencing suffering. Father, again, we're lifting up West to you. We know they're experiencing suffering right now. And Father, we pray that you put suffering into perspective. I pray that you would truly give us an eternal perspective, a heavenly mindset, to understand that all this pain, all the suffering in this world, you can use it for our good and your glory. And it's just temporary because we have the hope of heaven. So, Father, I pray that we would be filled with so much gratitude. I pray that you take the trials and you turn them around and you turn them into testimonies, Father. And I pray that we would be an army of believers in Hickory, North Carolina, that would be adamant about sharing your good name, being about your business in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, and anywhere you would send us to. Thank you for being so faithful and so good, even when we don't deserve a second of your time. Jesus, we love you. We love you. We love you. And all God's people said, amen. You guys go ahead and stand and worship. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to share what you heard this week, make sure and tag at hope underscore HKY on Instagram or Hope Hickory on Facebook. If you want to partner with our ministry, you can give online at hopehickory.org.